From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A federal judge puts the brakes on a plan that would allow trains to transport oil along the Colorado River, at least for now. We'll find out what's next. Then, it's the nation's only independent organization charged with investigating allegations of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse in professional sports. And it's based in Denver. When we first opened, we got about 300 ports a year, which we thought at that time was a lot. Fast forward to today, we're getting 150 reports every week. We'll talk about the challenges ahead and why ending abuse will take a big shift in sports culture. And Boulder's Kara Gulcher pulls back the curtain on the world of elite running. I started to think when my contract's up, I am going to leave. I need to be with a company that believes in women and treats women the same way behind closed doors as they do out in public. Thank you to the many businesses that support Colorado Public Radio. Our sponsors all have one thing in common. They're seeking to build brand awareness among CPR's audience while supporting the programming we all rely on. See a list of current sponsors and learn about our customizable sponsorship packages at CPR.org sponsorship. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A federal court has put the brakes on a project that would allow trains to ship oil along the Colorado River. The Uinta Basin Railway project is on hold since the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit has sided with Eagle County. Tom Hess is our Colorado Matters reporter on the Western Slope. He joins us now from Grand Junction to discuss the ruling. Hi, Tom. Hi, Chandra. Let's start with the basics. Remind us again, what is the Uinta Basin Project? So this is actually an eastern Utah project. It's about 88 miles of train line that would connect connect oil production in that region with the U.S. rail network. And that would mean a lot more train traffic going through Colorado to refineries in the Gulf Coast. We're talking up to 10 new trains a day, north of 300,000 barrels of new oil. And this was backed by a group in Utah called the Seven County Infrastructure Coalition. They got approval from the Surface Transportation Board, and that's what prompted this lawsuit from Eagle County and some environmental groups who were concerned that the analysis done in that approval wasn't sufficient. So what was this lawsuit asking the court to decide? There's a couple of things. One of them is an exemption petition that the Surface Transportation Board granted. That basically allows them to okay a process, a project without going through the full review process. Hmm. But the top line issue was the environmental analysis done on that. Um, A lot of NEPA stuff, the environmental impact statement, those are some acronyms you hear a lot in these parts. And the big worry was, did those analysis do enough to examine the project? And the groups that were suing over this said they didn't take the requisite hard look, particularly when it came to analyzing the downstream impacts of this project, namely what it would mean to have that much more train traffic going through Colorado. Hmm. So back in April, Senator Michael Bennett, Representative John Nagoose, and others joined local officials in Glenwood Canyon, and they talked about these very issues, right? Yeah, this was kind of a greatest hits of what was mentioned in the lawsuit. (laughs) 
concerns about derailments. Uh, a lot of these groups said the analysis that was done didn't consider mountainous train travel. I mean, these trains go through Ruby Horse Thief Canyon. They go through Glenwood Canyon. Pretty rugged terrain. They raise concerns about wildfires. People might remember the Grizzly Creek fire that in some ways still continues to cause problems in Glenwood mm. Canyon. Pollution from refinement in the Gulf Coast region came up. The economic viability of the project was somewhat in doubt. And largely just the lack of discussion on how this would impact Colorado. And the court sided with the petitioners of the suit on most of these issues. There is a couple of things that the co court didn't slide with them on, but certainly enough to put the brakes on the project, as you said. So where does that leave the situation? Well, it's not done. As anybody who follows these types of projects knows, it's a lengthy process. Right now, it can go back to the Surface Transportation Board. They can readdress some of the shortcomings in the analysis. And that sort of seems to be where this is going. Uh, the group backing the project put out a statement. They said they were ready, willing, and capable of working with the U.S. Surface Transportation Board to ensure additional reviews and the project's next steps proceed without further delay. So it sounds like they're willing to fill in those gaps and see what they can build out. But there's other hurdles that exist. The Surface Transportation Board is not the only agency that looks at these issues. And Senator Bennett, Jonah Goose have filed objections with those agencies as well. And they've also reached out to the Biden administration to take a look, closer look at this. So right now it's halted, but it could be a very long time before we find out the ultimate conclusion of this project and whether or not that oil ever gets shipped out of eastern Utah. Sounds like a lot left to decide. <laughs> Tom, thank you. You bet. That's Tom Hess joining us from the CPR office on Main Street in Grand Junction. When we come back, working to ensure safety in sports, off the field and out of the arena. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. A newcomer to Colorado asked Colorado Wonders if the state has waterfalls. Well, we decided to take him on a hike to see for himself. <laughs> That's so incredible. Is this what you expected? Well, yes and no. I've seen waterfalls, but never like in person. I'm Jenna McMurtry. Come with Colorado Wonders on an awe-inspiring waterfall hike. Get recommendations for more and see pictures at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Research shows that playing sports helps kids lead healthier lives and feel better about themselves. It also helps them build friendships and develop valuable life skills like teamwork, discipline, and responsibility. That growing body of research helped inspire the Project Play Summit, led by the Aspen Institute's Sports and Society program this past spring. John Solomon is the program's editorial director. Project Play is an initiative that develops, applies, and shares knowledge to try to build healthy communities through sports. We really try to take a deep dive in exploring what are the challenges and what are the opportunities to get more kids quality access to sports and physical activity. Unfortunately, with the good also comes the bad. The U.S. Center for Safe Sport was born out of the need to address complaints of misconduct. It's the nation's only independent organization tasked with investigating allegations of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse in both professional and amateur sports, and it's based here in Denver. 
I spoke with its CEO, Jerice Kalan, in between sessions at the Project Place Summit. Tell us about the work that you do. Sure. So the Center for Safe Sport was opened in 2017, um, shortly after Larry Nasser was arrested and put in jail. And so this was at a time where athletes, coaches, the nation, Congress were just very, very angry and wanted to see substantive change when it came to protecting athletes, with, particularly within the Olympic and Paralympic movement. And so we opened our doors with a very simple mission, and that is to end abuse in sport. And so we've got jurisdiction over um, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic athletes and all those that kind of fall up under the movement. So think about coaches, doctors, um, and not just Team USA, right, the 600 athletes that are headed to Paris next year, but also all of those kids that roll up under in these sports who are one day to be, you know, Olympic hopefuls. And so we've got a really big mission, a really big task, and we do that in a couple of different ways. One, we really focus in on education because mm. what we found is so very important that those who particularly who interact with kids understand how to recognize, report, uh, and respond to uh, sexual, physical, emotional abuse and misconduct, first and foremost. The center also has the ability and has developed policies, safety policies, for every national governing body within the Olympic and Paralympic movement. So think about gymnastics, curling, hockey, track and field. All of those organizations um, are required to use our policies and also push those down to their local affiliated organizations. And we audit against them to make sure they're actually doing what they're supposed to do, whether it is around one-on-one contact or communications or how they're uh, traveling with teams. But what we're probably most known for is our response and resolution and our ability to not only investigate allegations of sexual abuse and misconduct within the Olympic movement, but to also sanction individuals so that we are removing people from sport that shouldn't be involved with sport and certainly shouldn't be involved with kids. We had the elite runner Kara Gulcher on and she shared her experience with abuse and also just kind of sharing the ugly side of elite sports. What are the pressing issues right now and challenges that you all are focusing on and addressing now that you've established your center? So I think there's a couple of things, and unfortunately, one of them is tackling sexual abuse and misconduct within sport, right? And unfortunately, that is something that we continue to see as pervasive, not only in sport, but in youth schools and after-school programs, et cetera, right? Abuse happens at all levels, whether you're a leader or not, and at all ages. And that's one of the reasons why the center, we not only investigate allegation of abuse misconduct that happened to minors, but also adults, because it is pervasive. And one of the things that we are starting to see change, which is great, is that people are starting to recognize when things aren't quite right. And if you think back to five, 10 years ago, one, there wasn't a place to report. And so now that we've got this centralized location for folks to actually come and report and tell their stories and to seek um, answers, right, and resolution to some of this, but it's really important that they understand that there's a place that they can actually do that. You know, another emerging area for us is around emotional and physical abuse misconduct. And as you you saw in Kara Goucher's book and many others, athletes' experiences as they've told them, you know, it's not just sexual abuse misconduct. It's all these other things that happen along the way that really impact them, whether they are just being beat down emotionally or physically, that kind of lead and kind of perpetuate some of that. And we're seeing more reports on that front than we have ever seen before. Well, I know she spoke about being weighed in front of other people, comments about weight, and I've heard that a lot in the area of sports. So what 
can be done to eliminate this? So I think first and foremost, it's this right here, where people are actually talking about it openly and honestly. You know, we couldn't find a book like Kara Goucher's 10 years ago. Nobody really talked about abuse um, in this way before hundreds of women talked about what happened to them with Larry Nassar or the National Women's Soccer League, right, came out and said, hey, this is what happened to me. So I think part of it is, is us continuing to have conversations around it and kind of taking away the stigma from really just acknowledging it and, and, and admitting that this has happened and for you to be able to seek answers. Sometimes people are embarrassed. They don't want to talk about it because they, one, they just don't want anybody to know and they don't want to be judged. And sometimes they just don't know if anything can happen. So I think a big part of it is having conversations about it and being open about it to say, look, this is what happens. And then also driving the accountability to make sure it doesn't happen again. I mean, it's one thing for us to have a place to report abuse, but athletes in particular, no matter their age, have to understand and trust that someone is going to take some action. And I think in her case and many, many others, those coaches, those doctors, and other athletes who were offenders were removed from sport and penalized, right? Because that's the big period. You have to drive that accountability piece. And without it, the system doesn't work. Are there efforts to increase accountability? So we, the center is lucky that we have not one, but two laws that help drive our work. So in 2017, the State Sport Authorization Act is passed. And then in 2020, the Empowering Olympic and Amateur Athletes Act of 2020 was passed as well. Both of those laws combined give the center exclusive authority to drive that accountability on the organizational level and the individual level. We've talked about the individual level, right? Investigating cases of abuse, removing people from sport. We also work really close with law enforcement, and sometimes those investigations will yield criminal charges as well. Mm. The other part is making sure that organizations are doing what they're supposed to do to protect their athletes, no matter if they're on the road, if they're at practice, if they're going to the games, and who can, and, and no matter what age they are. So really making sure that these organizations are putting in safety measures in place for all of their athletes and then following them and then also driving accountability within their organization. So if someone is not committed to safety, if someone is allowing abuse to go on, you know, really requiring them to take a cold, hard look at that, removing those folks and really making sure that they're living up to, you know, what is the embodiment of being an elite athlete, right? You want to do your best, but you cannot do your best if you are constantly concerned about being abused in some way. So I think it's it's all about making sure that, you know, we are removing people who shouldn't belong, but also driving policies, procedures, actions that are there to help keep athletes safe and make sure that we hold organizations accountable to those. Now, do you have any sense of how prevalent this is in terms of data? You know, it, abuse is a data on abuse is, is kind of difficult. Um, there's been a lot of studies that have been that have been done, and you know you can find some that you know one in four girls will be abused sexually before their age of 18, which is crazy. I think the mm. number is one in um, one in eight boys. That's a lot of kids. If you think about just, you know, a, a classroom, right? You're going to tell me that there's like eight kids in this classroom that could potentially be abused. So abuse is very pervasive. For us, you know, we have jurisdiction over about 11 to 14 million people at any given time. And when we first opened, we got about 300 reports a year, which we thought at that time was a lot, right? 
fast forward to today, we're getting 150 reports every week. So we're getting wow. more reports every month than we did it a year ago. So we know that one abuse continues to be pervasive. But what we also know is that people are starting to report. Um, and so I don't know if we're going to truly ever get a grasp, right, of what the real issue looks like because there, it just, one, it takes a long time for people to disclose in many cases, and sometimes they never do. Why did you think it was important to participate in the Project Play Summit? How do you feel it plays into the work that you're doing? I mean, you know, youth sports is really important to kids, um, and it's important to their growth, and it's important for them to learn life skills like teamwork and, you know, managing conflicts. I used to work at Boys and Girls Clubs of America, and, you know, that we, youth development was the name of the game, right? And so youth sports played a really big role in that. And so I think for us, we want to help contribute to, one, making sure kids are, have accessible um, have sport is accessible to them and that they continue to have those experiences. But we want to make sure that those experiences are safe and they're not traumatic and they're actually doing what they're supposed to do it and building kids up, not tearing them down. And so for the Center for Safe Sport, we develop a ton of educational resources, particularly our emotional and physical abuse prevention toolkit that really pairs nicely with a lot of the work that the organizations here um, that are here at Project Play are doing. And so I think it's a natural fit for us um, and just really excited to be here and just learn. You are based in Denver. Are there any efforts that you are doing here that are specific to Colorado? Yeah, so um, about half of my staff are, and with, there's about 125 folks that work for the Center for Safe Sport, are based in the Colorado area, mostly in Denver. And so we do a lot of work, um, particularly around marketing and education to help those folks who live in the state as well. So if you actually, if you're riding down Colfax, you might actually see a billboard um, with the U.S. Center for Safe Sport logo, which is exciting. I'm going to have to look I pulled that. over. It was very <laughs> exciting to me. Took a photo. It's <laughs> <laughs> right at Colfax in Colorado. Um, there's also okay. one in Lohi. Um, and so, you know, so we're, we're really trying to elevate our name and presence, right? One, just so that people know that we're in their backyard, but also to really drive educational content um, because we want people to take our courses. We want people to learn from what we have. And Colorado is just a magnet for so many sports, right? It just makes sense for us to be here. And it also makes sense for people to use our resources here. How does one get involved and get access to the U.S. Center for Safe Sport programming? Yeah, so visit our website, uscenterforsafesport.org. From there, you can make a report, you can read audits that we do, and most importantly, um, you can take a look at our educational resources, take one of our courses, um, and really start to learn how to recognize, report, and respond to abuse. What do you hope for the future of sports in light of what you do with the U.S. Center for Safe Sport? You know, I think I have many dreams <laughs> about the Center for Safe Sport, um, but I think one of the, the biggest ones, right, and probably the most wildly um, ambitious goals is that we get to a point where we are, are not so focused on resolving allegations of abuse because we have figured out how to prevent it. Um, and that our time and our energy and the work that we do and the work that governing bodies and organizations do to protect athletes is really about education and that we are stopping things before they escalate to abuse. We will always be available to take reports of abuse, but that's after the fact, right? That means that somebody has been already harmed. My dream is that we get to that before it ever happens so that we don't have to go down that road. Well, since we're talking about kids in sports today, and you also referenced earlier parents, what do they need to know to best protect their child from 
any type of abuse. You know, parents are integral into the safety of protecting their kids, right? We drop them off and hope for the best, right? Um, but we, it doesn't stop there, right? Just like we wouldn't just, you know, throw any sort of food on the plate, right? We want to make solid choices for kids. Um, and I think one of the things that I think parents can do first and foremost is, one, understand what abuse looks like, right? Know some of the warning signs uh, and know what questions to ask their kids. And we've got a lot of scenarios on our website that help facilitate some of those conversations. The other piece is when you're signing your kids up for, you know, basketball camp or you're signing your kids up for a new wrestling gym, um, find out what their safety practices and policies are, what is okay there and what's not, so that if you see something, a rule that's being bent or broken, that you know how to recognize that and know what the steps are to report. And I think one of the biggest things, um, when you're looking for a new coach, right, and you want to drop your child off to, to learn some new skills and techniques, check the center's centralized disciplinary database. That is where we list all the names of all of the people that we have removed from sports since we have opened. And I think that is a great resource. It's underutilized, but it can give parents some power to understand who and who should and who should not be around their kids. Therese, thank you. Thank you. That was Jerice Kalan, CEO of the Denver-based U.S. Center for Safe Sport. We spoke at the Project Play Summit in Colorado Springs this spring. In her interview, you heard her mention that the caseload is increasing. Reports of abuse and misconduct are up by more than 50% in 2022 and continues to increase this year. An Associated Press report was released after we spoke about complaints that there's a backlog, that it takes too long to resolve investigations, and that cases are often closed without conclusions. The U.S. Soccer Athletes Council sent a letter to Congress signed by the U.S. Women's World Cup team asking for reforms. In a statement, Kalan said in part that the Safe Sports Center is, quote, deeply committed to continuous improvement. She said the center has launched new data collection and case management systems to improve efficiencies, and her team is working on better trauma-informed communication to ensure their process is more clear. She also noted that when the center puts a complaint on administrative closure status, it does not mean that it's unresolved or closed for good. The case can be reopened based on new information, which she notes has happened in more than 200 instances. We'll post the entire complaint and response in the Colorado Matters podcast later today at CPR.org. Boulder-based elite athlete Kara Goucher was mentioned in my discussion with Kalan. Her memoir pulls back the curtain on the world of competitive running. Her story in her own words when we come back. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. The town of Iola disappeared to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. I have played and swam in Blue Mesa, and I've always been haunted that there are towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa. Shelley Reed sets her new novel in Iola. Read Go As A River with us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Then join us September 13th in Grand Junction. Details at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. With support from Elevation Press of Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Elite long-distance runner Kara Goucher lives in Boulder, 
and her emotional tell-all book reveals the dirty side of her sport at the highest levels of competition. When we spoke in April, she also told me about the personal transformation she underwent through her running career. Hi, Kara. Hi. I'm going to jump right into your Olympic debut. It was 2008 in Beijing. Being in the Athletes' Village, you got imposter syndrome, feeling like you didn't belong there. What was it like to be in the Olympics and to race there, but at the same time not feel like you belonged? Yeah, you know, it had been this lifelong, like lifelong childhood dream. But when I got there, I just felt really overwhelmed. I was seeing literally the best athletes in the world walking around the village. And um, I just felt overwhelmed. Like, how did I get here? Uh, I remember walking out into the track stadium and it sat there 80,000 people. And that's more than are in my hometown. So I just got kind of overwhelmed by the experience and all the things that I had done that had helped me become a good athlete. I sort of lost my way a little bit while I was there at the Olympics. Now, you've been passionate about running from such a young age. How did you get into it growing up in Duluth, Minnesota? Yeah, well, believe it or not, Duluth, Minnesota has a pretty big running culture. We have Grandma's Marathon, which is uh, a big marathon every June. But I got into it because my grandpa was a lifelong runner. it's kind of interesting. He wasn't necessarily like a racer like I became. Mm-hmm. He just loved it for the movement and the freedom of it. And he's the one that got me into running. He took me to my first race when I was six years old. And he loved to tell the story about how I fell at the start. And he thought I was going to cry. And instead, <laughs> I jumped up and was like competitive. And he was like, wow, he didn't know that I had that in me. And so he really was someone, I mean, he was a father figure to me, just a really, really influential person in my life. And since he loved running and he introduced it to me, I just loved it right away because it was special between him and me. So I heard that he had a notebook and a pen in one hand and a stopwatch in the other. Oh, yeah. When he cheered, it was booming. Like you could hear him across the track or way across the cross country course. And he would like take notes. He would help me set goals and He would write down my splits during each race and then give it to me so I could look and see where I had faltered or maybe I went out too fast. And he was really, really into it, but not in a way that made me feel pressure. Just he just loved that I was doing it and I was experiencing that sport. I love that. I'm just imagining him with that notebook. It's like, who needs technology? (laughs) I get a notebook and get to the get to business. (laughs) Totally, totally. Just a paper and pen. That's right. Keep it simple. So. You write about two formative experiences you had during races when you were really young. One against a sixth grade boyfriend and one against a babysitter. What happened in those incidents and what did it teach you? Those two incidences in sixth grade, I raced against um, like literally the love of my life at the time. And (laughs) we were running, I think, a 440, uh, like a 440 yard dash. And he was in the lead and I was closing in on him. And I remember thinking like, I don't want to pass him. I don't want him to be mad at me or to feel bad. But again, that competitive instinct kicked in and I went by him. And at the end, I thought he was going to be embarrassed or not want to talk to me. But instead, he was like, good job. You know, he was nice to me afterwards. And so kind of laid this early seed of it's okay to be competitive. There's nothing wrong with being competitive. Um, And then fast forward uh, I guess a year, I was in seventh grade and I was race, I was racing for the high school for the track team. And I was running behind my former babysitter. 
<laughs> and I was just sort of sitting behind her thinking, like, I can't pass her. That would be so disrespectful. Like, literally four years ago, she was tucking me in bed. Um, and she said, Kara, just go ahead and pass me. And, and I hesitated. And she really encouraged me again. And afterwards, she was like, don't be afraid to pass people. And so both of those incidences really left an imprint on me of it doesn't have to affect your relationships with people. It's okay to be competitive. It's okay to run as hard as you want to run. Well, I'm picturing both of those races, only I have to hear Alicia Keys's This Girl is on Fire in the background. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love yes. that song. So let's do it. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I see it. I see it. So you came to college at CU Boulder and had a lot of success there. Um, your team won the first ever national cross-country title in CU history. Congratulations. Then you joined a new running team at Nike. Can you describe what the Oregon Project was intended to be? Yeah, the Nike Oregon Project was started in 2000, and it was really to bring American distance running back to the forefront. As a country, we just weren't performing very well in the distances, and specifically in the marathon. And Alberto Salazar and I believe Tom Clark were at the Boston Marathon and said, "This is we're celebrating because someone got in the top 10 at the Boston Marathon, but we're nowhere near the podium. So they started this program, and it was all for men. But it was really to give them all of the tools they could possibly need to be successful and hopefully bring American distance running back to the forefront. My husband and I were invited to come visit and we were completely blown away. We had never seen anything like it. And it really was groundbreaking at the time. It was professionalizing team distance running, which there wasn't anything. There were little groups and pockets of people around the country that were training. But this was like you had the backing of Nike. You had a budget to travel to train at high altitude. You had massage therapists and PTs and access to incredible technology and equipment. And so it really was about bringing distance running back. And I felt really lucky at the time that I was the first woman to join. Well, Adam, of course, is your husband, who is also an elite runner and also ran for the Oregon Project. So you mentioned Alberto Salazar. Now, he's the coach for the Oregon Project. And what did you know about him going into it? And what was your expectation of working with him? You know, I didn't really understand how good he was. You know, as far as I knew, he was a marathoner. Of course, when I get into his world, I learned just how influential he is. And he won the New York City Marathon three times. He mm -hmm. won the Boston Marathon. He's an absolute legend in the sport. He set the world record at one point. And it was the way people acted around him that's when I really realized, like, oh, he's a big deal. I mean, I remember getting in a cab in Europe and the cab driver started freaking out. And he was like, Alberto Salazar in my cab, like, and got his <laughs> autograph. And he was just larger than life. And, of course, training at Nike, they have buildings named after sporting icons. And he had his own building at the Nike campus. Uh, you were the only female runner there for several years. And you had come to the Oregon Project sort of in conjunction with your husband, because he, of course, as we mentioned, was also an elite runner. But within a few years, you became a star of the team. So this coach was making your dreams come true on the track. But he was also freaking you out in a lot of ways. Can you describe the conflicting feelings you were having about your coach? Yeah, I mean, having Alberto believe in me and take more of an interest in me was like a dream come true. I mean, we went there. He wanted Adam. You know, he didn't necessarily want me. I just kind of was along for the ride. But, you know, once I started doing better, he started paying more attention. But there were just things about him that were unusual. Hmm. You know, the way he 
was very involved in everyone's lives, the way he gave athletes massages, things like that. But at the same time, like the more he was paying attention to me, the better I was running and the more committed I was to what we were doing. So it was sort of over a period of time where I just started to, when I would see something that was different or suspicious or whatever, I would just excuse it away. Now, in the book, you talk about how he also constantly commented on your weight in a way that felt beyond a healthy coaching relationship and had weigh-ins to, in your opinion, embarrass you in front of your teammates. Yeah, he was very obsessed with weight. And, you know, he would sometimes weigh us in front of each other, but otherwise would weigh us in the lab. And, you know, especially for one of my teammates, I feel like he really used it as a humiliation tactic for her, uh, which I regret not standing up for her. And there was no science behind it. It wasn't like we were working with a nutritionist or getting our body composition done and, you know, working with some sort of professional. It was just based on his what he saw. And he sort of just picked these arbitrary numbers of what he thought you should weigh. And unfortunately, that practice continued long after I left the team. You also write about two incidents of sexual abuse by your coach. In addition to all the violating and demeaning comments, why did you decide to put yourself through the struggle of reliving those moments in order to get them out there in the public in this book? I felt like it was important to share all of that. I had a lot of embarrassment and shame with all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was in my 30s. I was married. I wasn't a teenager. I wasn't fresh out of college. I was a grown adult. And there was a lot of shame for me that this had happened. I felt like at some level it was my fault or that I allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. As I got as I started to work through it, it became really important to me to share. Like if I was going to share my story, I needed to share it all because I felt like there were going to be a lot of other women who have experienced similar circumstances, not necessarily in running, but just in life. And it, I, it was important to me to let them know that it's not your fault and there's no textbook way of how you react or how you should react, but also that you can get through it. You know, it was something I carried for a long time. And I was afraid that if I ever talked about it, I would be defined as damaged in some way. Mm. And so it's just really important for me to, to just tell the truth of what happened, speak about it openly so that other people could see themselves in it and realize that they're not alone. Now, you mentioned this shame. What has made it possible for you to stop feeling that shame and just let yourself off the hook? I mean, honestly, it was a lot of therapy. I had a really, really good therapist here in Boulder that I worked with who helped me to realize that, you know, I didn't do anything wrong and that I didn't react in a bad way. I reacted the way I had to react to survive the moment. And um, like, like most athletes and a lot of women, I think, we learn how to compartmentalize because like as an athlete, you you can't think about how much you're hurting because that would distract from what you're trying to accomplish. Or you can't get too excited about the finish because you can't get let those emotions get in the way. And so I think I really learned to just compartmentalize it and push it aside. And working with a therapist, I really learned uh, it was hard, but to kind of open up those boxes and um, work through what happened and, and to sort of forgive myself for how I reacted during that time and to understand that I was just doing the best that I could do in those moments. Now, what happened to your coach? He faced some consequences, right? Yeah, well, he was banned for four years for anti-doping violations, which actually is up this year in October. 
but he was banned for life by safe sport. So he is banned for life at the elite level of sport to be involved really in any way. However, safe sport's jurisdiction is only at elite Olympic level sport. So he could continue once his uh, doping ban is up at the end of this year. He could conceivably coach high school or college. And just to clarify, the, you mentioned the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, which is a Denver-based organization that was created in the wake of Larry Nasser, an abusive former gymnastics coach, to address abuse against college athletes. Yes, but its jurisdiction, it doesn't actually hold people accountable at the college level. So that's the one hiccup with safe sport is that the NCAA doesn't fall under safe sport jurisdiction. They would have to choose to opt into that. And at this point, they haven't. So are you afraid that Alberto will get to coach again? I am. My wish would be that he goes on and lives a happy life, but is not involved in athletics in any way, shape or form. And I am concerned that there will be people who say it's worth the risk to have him coach. Um, wow. But we'll just have to see what happens. Let's talk about your career in racing. One of your biggest accomplishments is a silver medal at the World Championships in 2007. You ran at 10,000 meters, which is 25 laps around the track. You describe how you found another gear in that race and really pushed yourself to that finish. For those of us who feel accomplished running three miles around the neighborhood on a Saturday, <laughs> what does it feel like to find another gear and have that kick in during a race? Obviously, you're running hard. It's not like you're running easy. But sometimes you know that you're not at that edge. And, and distance running is all about timing it right. Like you want to cross the finish line with zero left, but you can't put it in too soon or you won't, you'll struggle to finish. So for me, it was like waiting till that last moment and then being kind of brave enough to say, yeah, I'm going to go harder right now and it's going to hurt. And usually once I push through that pain of the first few steps of sort of switching my cadence, you know, mm -hmm. the legs would be there and it would carry me in. But it was hard to do that because, like I said, you're you. It's not like you're just jogging and or walking. You know, you're running hard. And in Osaka was one of the first times that I really was able to do that in a in a moment where there was pressure. I had done it in college. I had done it in high school here and there. I would call it flipping the switch and um, you know, change over from a hard run to a sprint. But it you know, it was tough mentally to do it there. Not only was I hot, of course, and tired because I'm running the world championships. But also, I had never competed against women at that level before. And I was telling my, I had to convince myself, like, I I deserve to be here. And yes, I could go get a medal right now if I just go for it. So that was a, a huge moment for me as an athlete. And it really changed the trajectory of my career. Now, the World Championships were in Osaka. After that, you went to the Beijing Olympics and then decided to switch over to the marathon. That's when you really started to make serious money. Can you lift the veil on how the money stuff works for elite marathoners? Yeah, the marathons are, are they're a good way to make money if you're good at marathons. So you get a contract just to start. And so, for instance, my first marathon, I got $175,000 just to start from the mm. New York City Marathon. And then, of course, there's prize money and then there's also bonuses. So if you run under a certain time or if you place high enough, my first year in New York was also unique where they gave American-only prize money based on how Americans did. So you run a solid marathon and you're walking away. I mean, you could walk away with potentially like a half a million dollars. So wow. it, it was a game changer for me because it was like, and, and it helped me understand, you know, you really want to just do two marathons a year and you really want to do them seriously because you want to do them well. Some marathon contracts do have reductions based on how you do. For instance, in 2014, I went back to New York 
and, and really struggled, had a bad day, and my appearance fee was reduced because I didn't perform well enough. Wow. Um, but if you hit it right and you have a good, solid race, you know, it sets you up. And, you know, I had come from where I had a small contract, where I had to fight to get into races. I mean, most races I couldn't get into unless my husband was running. And then, like, he would get in and then the concession would be that I could get in. And so entering the world of marathoning was eye-opening and uh, it was amazing and pretty financially good. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. You had an incredible debut in that first New York City marathon. You finished third, which you write was the first podium finish for an American woman in 14 years. There was a moment in the race where you felt the presence of your father who died decades before that. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So I was actually born in New York City. My father was a a Croatian immigrant and his family had an insulation business in New York. And a week before my fourth birthday, he was killed on his way to work. And and that's how I ended up in Minnesota is that my mom sort of packed us up and we, we moved in with her parents for a little bit. But when I went to race the New York City Marathon, the media was really into this story. And I didn't really know how to act. Like I had obviously like struggled with the loss of my father and dealt with that off and on throughout my life, but never in in any context of my running. During the race, I had been told like, it won't get hard till mile 20. And we were about approaching halfway. And and, I mean, it was hard. It was pretty hard. And I started to drop back and I dropped back into fifth or sixth place. And I started to think like, I can't do this. Like, I'm actually not cut out for this. And this voice just came to me and it was just telling me, you're okay, you can do this. And I pictured my father and I had never thought about him ever when I was racing before. And, you know, it kind of centered me and um, I got back into the top three and, and kept going. And I didn't even realize it until I was talking about it with the media later that I found out that I heard his voice within blocks of where he um, had died. And, you know, I don't know what I believe. I don't know if if there's ghosts or whatever, but I do believe that he was in that moment. He was there for me. And so, yeah, I'm like getting choked up. But it was just sort of a, a really special moment that I've never had replicated. But it definitely happened. And it was pretty special. Well, it's hard to uh, not get goosebumps hearing that story. It's just, and especially mentioning that it, it was near where he had passed away. And wow, just just an amazing story. Now, Nike really put you on a pedestal during this time. They had you on billboards and in magazines, and they kept that up after you decided to become pregnant. They touted you as powerful, a multifaceted woman, But then years later, you got in a contract dispute with them because they wanted to retroactively suspend your contract since you didn't run competitively during part of your pregnancy and maternity leave. Now, that part of your book totally blew my mind. Nike was making money off your pregnant image, but didn't pay you a salary during your recovery? Yeah. So at that point, pregnancy was not in athlete contracts. And in fact, I remember when I signed my first contract with Nike, my then fiance asked, you know, what happens if she gets pregnant? At the time, I was horrified. I was like, why are you bringing that up? I just want my little piece of the pie, you know, like, don't ruin this for me. Don't put any ideas Um, in their head. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, But of course, now, like, women's careers are are going longer and longer. And I knew I wanted to have a child. I didn't want to wait till my career was over. And so it was an open discussion. It wasn't like I just went and got pregnant. Like, I had to go through fertility treatment. It was an open conversation 
with my coach and with my husband, obviously. And so when I was finally ready to try and my coach agreed it was a good time, I said, what's going to happen to my contract? I want to have this baby no matter what, but I just want to know what's going to happen because there is no set standard. And he went to the head of sports marketing who said, don't even go there. As long as she stays relevant, we will pay her. So during my pregnancy, I was all over the place. I was on the cover of magazines. I was doing, you know, dozens of photo shoots, dozens of appearances on behalf of the brand. Nike actually orchestrated my pregnancy announcement to the world on the front page of the sports section of the New York Times. Wow. And I thought, yeah, yes. (laughs) And I thought everything's well and good. I'm upholding my end of the bargain. I'm showing what a healthy fit pregnancy looks like. They're they're sharing my story and being able to say that they support women. And so in July, a few months before my son was born, uh, I was surprised that my payment didn't come through. I got paid quarterly at the time. Long story short, it wasn't a mistake. I found out that I had been suspended. And I mean, I still have a baby in my body at this point. I thought it was really unfair. It caused a lot of stress. I was told at the time by someone in Nike marketing that I was the most requested female athlete across all sports for interviews during my pregnancy. Wow. And I felt like it was very unfair that on the one hand, they would promote me and my image and write, you know, have all these articles written about how women can do everything and at the same time not be paid. (laughs) Well, I guess they can do everything but get paid, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it really was hard for me. It really made me feel like Nike was not the company that I believe they were. And honestly, it's what I sort of started to think, like, when my contract's up, I I am going to leave. I need to be with a company that believes in women and treats women the same way behind Mm -hmm. closed doors as they do out in public. Now, after you, another elite runner, Allison Felix, had a similar experience with Nike, not wanting to pay her during her maternity leave. And she spoke about it publicly after you did. That all led to Nike paying sponsored athletes who get pregnant and take maternity leave. Do you think the changes they've made are sufficient? I do. But what I would like is some acknowledgement that it was wrong in the past. I mean, if Allison Felix, the most decorated track and field athlete of all time, male or female, can't get her same salary while she's pregnant, like, what are we doing? You know, and... I spoke about it, but it really, we needed the superstar and the power of Allison Felix's voice to really get the issue changed. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I am glad that they've amended their contracts. I think that's great. It's good for the sport. It's great for female athletes. It's great for the longevity of female athletes. But what I wish is that we could get some acknowledgement that what was done in the past was wrong and that it harmed women, it harmed careers, and it forced women to come back before their bodies were healed. That's what happened in my own personal circumstance. Well, of course, this was a big public fight, but privately, do you feel some sense of satisfaction that maybe you were, you and Allison and others have been a part of this change to impact other women athletes? Oh, absolutely. I think that's the only reason why we told those stories. You know, Allison was nervous to tell the story of her situation because she didn't, you know, it's it's hard and there's going to be people that doubt you and that question you. But that was the whole point was we we have this opportunity to make it different for the people that come after us. Now, we've mentioned your former coach's suspension for doping. Performance enhancing drugs and cycling are much more well documented and well known. Do you think it was or even still is a problem to the same extent in running? I do. I think that we have a really big problem. I think there's enough research out there now that we know that athletes are cheating the system 
you can't be tested between, you know, 10 at night and 6 in the morning. There's a lot of microdosing substances that can go on during those hours. And I still think we have a ways to go. And and I know that when I say this, a lot of people in the anti-doping community cringe, but we have to just be really diligent. I would love to see if we could get more money even into investigation. Um, I think investigation, like that would be better if we can see like who's buying what. Um, but there's, you know, there's also athlete privacy. And so it's always going to be a battle. But I think there's more we could be doing. And to be clear, you were never implicated in doping. And in fact, you helped reveal the violations from your coach. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's been a lot of talk about me over the years, but I signed over every little bit of blood work, lab work I ever had. I let the United States Anti-Doping Agency go through it with a fine-tooth comb. And I have no fear saying that um, I never did anything and I was 100% clean all the time. What does the public not understand about women's sports that you wanted to start a conversation about with this book? Oh, so many things. I think that, you know, Sports were built for men, and then we came into them. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we aren't the same. You know, in high school, I wish that I had had more education on what going through puberty what meant and that it didn't mean my body was failing. It meant my body was getting stronger. I really wish that I had had more talks about food and nutrition when I was younger, where men typically, their prime is in their late 20s, early 30s, but for women, it's mid-30s and beyond. And so... We're not the same, and we need more help. A lot of us want careers while being mothers, while having families. While it is challenging to be a father who's an athlete, it's a lot more challenging for the mother. And there needs to be more research into returning to sport and what women need, the support that they need when they come back from childbirth. I just think the, the female experience is different, and that's okay. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Boulder-based elite long-distance runner Kara Goucher speaking with me in April. Her book is The Longest Race, Inside the Secret World of Abuse, Doping, and Deception on Nike's Elite Running Team. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.